Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Most people have never heard the word. If they have heard it, or if they somehow ran across it in their reading, they probably ignored it because it didn't seem to make any sense. The word is limerence, L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E. It was coined back in the 1970s by Dr. Dorothy Tenoff when she did a study of people that identified themselves as being madly in love. In her qualitative study, in other words, she was not testing people, she just did a lot of interviews, and then she looked for the commonalities among those people who said that they were madly in love. And so she coined this word, limerence, to identify people in that state and then wrote a book about it. Unfortunately, many people in the 1970s who were psychologists or marriage counselors or therapists did not accept her conclusions, thinking, no, no, you're making something out of nothing. It doesn't really exist like that. Interestingly, even today, and I'm recording this in the month of February in 2017, even today, I'm occasionally invited to come to some group of counselors or therapists somewhere who work with marriages, particularly marriages in trouble, And I'll teach them about limerence, and most of them, at least in the experiences that I've had, most of them had never heard of it. And once I explain it to them in detail, the light bulbs go off. Oh, that explains this, and that explains that. Yes. I want to explain it to you, if I may. Going beyond what Tenoff found back in the 1970s, oh, and by the way, the research since 1970s has been outstanding. Dr. Helen Fisher and her colleagues have done it a different way than Tenoff did. She is an anthropological biologist, Fisher is, and so they do things such as putting a person who identifies himself or herself as being madly in love into an fMRI. An MRI, of course, takes a picture, but an fMRI is a series of pictures, and they take pictures of the person's brain, and they show them photos of random people, get a picture of the brain, and ever so often they show them a photo of the person that they're madly in love with. Now, in the sciences, we refer to that person as the limerent object. Sometimes just in shorthand, we refer to him or her as the L-O. And by doing that and seeing the changes in what fires in the brain, what's taking place there, we identify that it's definitely real. It actually does exist. And Fisher's work has gone on then to examine the behavior of people who are in that state called limerence. And so she's added a great deal to what Fisher, I'm sorry, a great deal to what Tenov wrote in her book back in the 1970s. Interestingly, sometimes when I scan the internet looking for what people know about limerence out there, I see that people who really have no expertise in it at all, other than the fact that maybe at some point they live through it. And by the way, that does give you some true insight. There's no doubt about that. But no real study on it, not really understanding what's going on in the brain and what's happening to the person. Otherwise, they still quote Tenov quite a bit, even on some things that we now know that Tenov was not exactly right about, that Fisher has found more convincing evidence. And so not everybody who talks about limerence 
of the few that do. Not everybody who talks about limerence even understands completely what they're talking about. Now, we work with marriages. We work a lot with marriages in crisis. By the way, I'm Dr. Joe Beam. I work for a nonprofit called Marriage Helper. That's Marriage Help ER, Marriage Helper. You can check out a website at Marriage Helper, Marriage Help ER, MarriageHelper.com, and you can read a great deal there about this thing called limerence. But in this program, I want to kind of tie it up in a little bit of a bow, if I can, so that we can get a lot of information in one place. And you can listen to this and go, oh, okay, I see how the whole thing fits together. I see how the various pieces of the puzzle come into this thing right there. And that's what I hope to accomplish for you in the next several minutes. So when we talk about limerence, we're talking about people who are madly in love. And my experience comes from reading a lot of research, without a doubt. It also comes from the fact that hundreds of thousands of people have been through workshops and seminars and courses that I have developed. A great number of those people have been through courses that we do for marriages that are in crisis. For example, we do an intensive three-day workshop for marriages in great crisis. We call it Marriage Helper 911. And in that intense three days over the years, and I first began to do that back in 1999, in the years that we have done that, we found that two-thirds, actually 67%, two-thirds of the couples that come through that workshop Their marriage has been affected by infidelity, an extramarital affair. Now, for some, it's an affair that was just primarily about sex or a situation, wrong place, wrong time, did the wrong thing. But the vast majority of them were limerent affairs. What I mean by that is they're married to one person and they wind up being involved with another person. Sometimes they're referred to as emotional affairs because they do not always become sexual. Most of the time they do, but not always. And if a person does enter into a limerent affair, and if you prefer, we can call it a relationship affair, it's not really about the sex. It's about the connection between two people. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, if you're married to one, why in the world would you develop limerence with another? I'm going to explain that as best I can. And let's start doing that now. Is limerence a bad thing always? The answer to that is no, no, it's not. You see, if you have two single people and one's not going to be really bad for the other one and they develop limerence for each other, it will lead them to become emotionally involved with each other to the point where they feel they're madly in love and they want to marry each other and it can lead a couple to marriage without a doubt. By the way, if that did not happen in your marriage and if you're a married person, don't panic. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't always occur. The process of falling in love does not necessarily involve going through limerence, although for many people it does. The thing is, though, and I'll explain a lot more about this later, limerence always ends. Now, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but let me back up. You may have noticed, I said, if two people are single and one is not bad for the other. What I mean by that is if a person who is single and has a right to marry anybody, obviously, winds up in limerence with a person who is just bad news, He or she typically is not going to see that. Sometimes I illustrate, eh, what kind of a silly little illustration in a way, what if you had a 15-year-old girl who brings home a 42-year-old biker who's just recently out of prison, fresh scars on his face from the knife that he's been in, and by the way, that's not anything against bikers. 
just trying to make an illustration here. And she says, Mom, Dad, I've met this man. He's wonderful. I realize he's just out of prison for having killed somebody, but he served his time, and he's really a good guy now, and everything's going to be fine. If she is in limerence with him, she won't pay any attention to that age difference. If she's truly in limerence, she's not going to worry about the fact that he's been in prison or even the fact that he murdered somebody. And I'll explain more about why that happens that way later. In that case, even though they might both be single, limerence can still be a bad thing because it's going to blind her to any negatives about him at all. So limerence is okay for two single people. Actually, it can be a good thing if one is not terribly bad for the other because that one won't see it. Now, and there's another downside to it. If two people are madly in limerence with each other, I mean, it's really deep. Their productivity seems to go away. I once had a young lady that worked for me that I finally had to dismiss because she was in limerence deeply. And she was single. He was single. They were engaged. They were going to get married. But she didn't do any work at all. She spent nearly all day on her computer going to various wedding sites and bridal sites. When we discovered that, we had to let her go. Her productivity just was not what we were paying for. But I'm sure they wound up having a marriage, and I didn't keep up with her. And it's okay, then, for two single people other than it's going to stop productivity, or at least dramatically reduce it, and other than one of them being bad for the other. Most often, though, when we talk about limerence, it's in the context of someone who is married to one person and in limerence with another. Typically, that does not happen rapidly. Now, the kind of affairs that I mentioned earlier, like one that's all about sex. So you have a husband, maybe, who is going out and sleeping with prostitutes. That's not about limerence. That's something else altogether and not part of what we'll discuss in this program. But in this relationship affair, in this limerent affair, it typically does not stop off with any intention of violating any boundaries in the current marriage. Now, let me stop here and say a couple of things about that. Sometimes people say, well, what makes a person vulnerable to limerence? I could facetiously say, well, the fact that they're still breathing. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Typically, it's a person who, for whatever reason, feels that he or she is missing something in a relationship. Now, stay with me because I'm not trying to blame the other spouse at all. I want you to hear me very carefully on this. Often it comes out of childhood. It can come out of previous relationships. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's say a person went through childhood and felt unloved, either by mom or dad or both. Maybe there was a divorce and all kinds of horrendous things happened after that. And so this person grew up with this intense need to feel loved and needs it more than other people do in the sense of, I need to know right now that I'm loved no matter what. That situation, either coming out of childhood or from earlier relationships in life, can put a predisposition to the possibility of limerence, and typically the person isn't aware of it. What I mean by that is they don't actually go through life thinking, I'm going to keep going from one relationship to the next until I find somebody who loves me magnificently. As a matter of fact, most people that we deal with, the vast majority of the people we deal with, never go through limits with a lot of people. They go through it with one person and maybe two. Let me explain. The first time may have been the limits that led them to get married if they went through limits in that situation at all. Many couples don't. 
The second one, and what I'm describing here, would occur when a married person, it could be the husband, it could be the wife, when the married person develops a relationship with someone else, that with time develops into limerence. And when I say with time, it can happen relatively quickly, but usually doesn't. Now, it can, but not always. And this is a person who has some kind of a vulnerability, some kind of susceptibility to needing more affirmation, to needing more sensation of feeling loved, a need to feel that I'm not being ignored, that I really exist, that I have value, that I have substance. That, at least based on the couples that we've worked with, seems to be one of the characteristics that makes a person vulnerable to limerence. Now, interestingly, you as the person's spouse may not even know that that exists. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you won't. For example, if your husband feels this tremendous pain still, when he talks about what happened when he was 12 years old and his dad left his mom for some other woman and and how he felt that dad didn't love me or that dad loved her more than me because that's why he left mom. Or it's a little girl thinking, boy, you know, I, I grew up with parents that fought all the time and I avoided them because it seemed, I remember this one time, for example, when I said this one thing and it, it started a fight between the two of them And I begin to think, am I the reason they hate each other? Am I the reason they create all this misery in our household? It can be all kinds of situations, you understand. It can come out of childhood or early relationships where a person thinks and feels, I'm not sure if I'm really truly lovable as I am. Now, some days they feel they are. Perhaps no days they feel they are. But here's a person with this great need. And as I said a minute ago, sometimes you will know because they've told you about those situations, even though they may not understand the vulnerability that creates in them. And sometimes they don't talk about it at all because the pain is not quite as visible. As terrible as it is to have a physical scar, if we see a physical scar, we know that there's pain behind it and a story. Sometimes seeing the emotional mental or spiritual scars is impossible because for whatever reason, the person either doesn't recognize them himself or herself because they don't want to think about it or they have it in their heart, but they keep it hidden because they think it somehow makes them unlovable even more so. And so you might be married to a person where you don't even know that that exists and years can go by And you might be thinking, wow, my husband is very successful in his business and he's got so much confidence that certainly couldn't be applicable to him. Or my wife is one of the greatest women I know, very involved at church and the PTA at school, loves her children, busy all the time helping other people. This couldn't possibly be her. And I hope it isn't. But sometimes that great success at business or that being super involved in the lives of other people or whatever other thing you're looking at is covering up pain and can often be, this is what I'm doing so that I can feel like that people need me. So I can feel like I am worthy of respect, admiration, that I truly am lovable. These people, and again, you may have heard me say earlier that I could facetiously say, well, you know, if you're breathing, you're susceptible. In a sense, that's right. But definitely, if these other things are there, it creates some vulnerability. And you know, understand vulnerability does not 
mean it's necessarily going to happen. We're just talking about what kind of soil does it grow in. We're not saying it's definitely going to grow in that soil. I hope you understand this. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to help us understand ourselves and understand each other. Maybe, uh, maybe even understand some things about our dads or our moms or our brothers, our sisters, our, our best friends, and think, oh my goodness, I think that's why. Wow. Hmm. So if limerence begins to happen, it requires some kind of exposure to another person. Now, if you're single, it could be somebody that you met at church, somebody you met uh, on one of the online dating services like Real Christian Singles. It could be all kinds of things. If you're married, those kind of things can still happen, although hopefully hopefully you're not disguising yourself as single and looking on real Christian singles, you understand. But people that you work with, people that you have exposure to, people that you serve on a certain committee with at church. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I noticed anecdotally, in other words, I didn't do research on this. I just began to think about all the situations I'd encountered. And at that point, I was thinking, you know, the most common place to find an affair partner a paramour, is in the couple that's your best friends. Just this past week, I was talking to a friend again. She had gotten me to try to help a couple that were friends of hers a few years ago, and I did. And I was asking her, you know, what was the final outcome of all that? The reason I was asking for the final outcome is I knew a lot about what happened, but here was something interesting. When she began to have some marriage problems, when they began to have some difficulty, she would confide in her best friend, another female, about how hurt she was and how much she loved her husband and etc. And this other female, this best friend, began to visit with her husband ostensibly to help him understand his wife. Now, when I say ostensibly, that's what she said. So let's just let's just accept that that's true, whether it is or not, that that was her motives and intention to begin with. When you start spending time with another person that you're attracted to, either physically or intellectually or emotionally or spiritually, and there aren't really borders or boundaries around that, and quite often people don't make them because they think we're good people. We would never do anything wrong. Everything's fine. We're we're just good people. In that particular situation with that couple, she went into limerence with her best friend's husband. And that's when I was asking, how did that finally turn out? I know he wound up divorced from his wife. Did he marry the other woman? And the answer was no. No, he finally went on to somebody after her. She was in limerence. He was not. He was more about the conquest. And I said, so what happened to the former best friend? Oh, she divorced her husband, and she's waiting, hoping that someday the man she was in limerence with will come back. Unfortunately, he will not. So if we look at this, you say, then it could be a couple of our best friends. Yeah, because you spend time with them. It has to have some kind of interaction. So the interaction might be in person, face-to-face, when you go on trips together. It might be somebody you work with that you talk to a lot. It may be somebody that you interact a great deal with online, either through texting each other with your phones or contacting each other through Facebook and the private chats or any of those kinds of things, or a person even that you talk to on Skype or FaceTime or whatever it might be. But there has to be some kind of access to the other person. And over time, what happens is this. If either or both of them are people who want to feel love and for whatever reason are looking for more affirmation, whether they realize it or not, 
then what they start doing after they do the normal things in polite talk, like, you know, how's it going, all those kinds of things. If they talk a lot to each other, it can't just be small talk after that. And so it evolves into a situation where they start revealing things about themselves. Things that maybe they don't want the whole world to know because they fear that the other people around them will reject them. And if this person they're developing this new relationship with is very accepting and understanding, then they begin to reveal more about themselves. As a matter of fact, maybe telling this person things they've never told any other human being, even that far. And if they continue to receive acceptance from the other person, like, wow, I can see that, I understand. And they reciprocate where the other person is self-revealing as well then they are forming a strong emotional bond. Now think about it. If you have a best friend of the same gender, you've done that with him or her. You've let that person know things about you that the world doesn't know. You've opened up and shared and you've confessed and you've done all kinds of things like that. And that's what created the great strong bond of love, of close personal friendship. Now, when it's happening with a person in the situation where I'm describing, so that here are two people who work together, or they're singing on the uh, praise team at their church together and, and start hanging out in the parking lot after the practice so they can talk to each other, and they just keep taking all of these barriers away to let the other person see not only the things that they have done, but the things that they feel, and they may wind up telling this person things about their emotions they've never told anybody else. That even though they may have been married 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years, they've never even told the spouse. But they feel so safe in this situation that they do with the other person. And if this reciprocity continues, where they're continuing to share this information with each other and about each other and accepting, it is a form of love. And that love can become extremely intense. Extremely intense. I remember reading a quote by Gottman a few years ago. Gottman is a guru when it comes to researching marriages, and particularly marriage problems. Brilliant, brilliant man. And he was saying that in his work, he found that most extramarital affairs were not about sex at all. They were really about feeling accepted and affirmed, that there was some emotional need that was not being fulfilled that began to be fulfilled by another person. Now, when a person first starts into that, I mentioned earlier, there are three stages of, of limerence, so let me explain what those three stages are. The first stage I call infatuation, and it can be a relatively steep curve. What I mean by that is, for some people, the infatuation stage doesn't go real fast, and so, you know, if you were going to draw it in front of you, you'd draw a line that doesn't go straight up, but slants. And for some, the slant can be, you know, almost flat for a while, and then it starts going up. And when it does go up, it does not necessarily continue in a straight line. It actually can become a squiggly line, so that some points is higher and some points is lower as people go in and out of thinking, wow, I really am enjoying talking to this person and being with this person, but maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe this is a bad thing. And so it can actually be going up and then dip down a little bit and then kind of go back up again. So I don't think it's like, you know, drawing a straight side of a cliff up there. Can it happen that way? Yes. Have I seen it like that? I have. But with many people, it's not like that. So the first stage is what I call infatuation. Infatuation is basically, wow, I really am enamored of you. 
It starts off with a little bit of that, like I just enjoy the fact that I see you physically and or intellectually, emotionally, spiritually attractive, and you're paying attention to me. Well, I want to be with you more. I want to talk with you more. And so maybe it's a little bit of infatuation at that point where you're not even admitting to yourself that you really are attracted to that person as much as you are or that you want to be with that person as much as you do. So you keep talking and sharing and all those kinds of things because you're good people. You're never going to do anything wrong. And as you get higher and higher in that infatuation, things begin to change because at some point, you're going to wind up hiding your interaction with each other. It may be because somebody questions it. You know, it looks to me like you're spending too much time with that woman over there. Uh, what's this about? Oh, nothing, nothing. We're just friends. And so you start hiding. Or, or your husband says, honey, I noticed that when you go over to work out at the gym, it used to take you an hour. Now it takes two uh, what's going on? And you don't want to tell him, well, I've met this guy over there that we kind of work out together. And then we, we wind up sitting over there and drinking our health water for another hour and just talking to each other. And so you hide, you deceive, you don't let other people know what's really happening. By the way, the first time, the first time you hide what you're doing, the first time you make it a secret, you've already crossed a boundary. You really have, whether you admit it or not. And as this gets more and more intense and becomes more and more secret, as this infatuation begins kind of overwhelming where you find yourself dreaming about the other person or thinking about the person a lot, you get up really close to what is called, or what I call, phase two. And when I say what I call, understand that I've not seen any research that there are three phases of limerence. I'm basing this off of the experience that we've had with thousands and thousands. Now, I read the research. As a matter of fact, we're about to do some more research, scholarly, social science research, and medical science research about limerence. I was just talking to one of the PhDs that's going to be part of that the other day. I was actually talking to one of the physicians, a medical doctor, who was going to be part of that the other day as well. So we will do more and more research about it. But right now, I'm telling you that when I talk about the three phases of limerence, I'm talking about things that I have seen, therefore I believe them to be true, and I can illustrate all the way through. Phase one then, infatuation, which becomes stronger and stronger, even though sometimes it'll dip down, kind of go the other way, the way that squiggly line, it gets stronger and stronger, and it gets really strong when you get secrets, even though sometimes even after that it'll dip down because one of you will be going, ah, boy, you know, I, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because other people were talking about us. And so we decided to meet over there in the park and those tables at the back during the daytime, because nobody goes there during the weekday. And that's where we take our lunch and we just sit there and talk to each other. We go in different cars and different routes and we talk about a lot of things and I become so very open. And sometimes it's become a little, you know, sexual innuendo in what we talk about over there. Maybe I need to quit this. And so he or she may say to the other person, you know, I really enjoy this, but I, I think this is going the wrong direction. We need to stop. And then that squiggly line kind of goes down a little bit. If the other person is in limerence, and by the way, almost always one of them goes into limerence faster than the other. And if that person who's gone faster into the limerence is further up the line, closer to stage two, which I'll explain in just a minute, and the one who's not quite up there is the one who's trying to pull away because he or she begins to feel guilt or think, my, this is not a good thing to do. The one who is deeper, faster, 
will do all kinds of things to get him or her back. They will do whatever it takes to pull the person back. It's not because they're evil, although I'm quite sure if it's happened to your spouse, you do perceive the other person as evil. It's a reaction they're having because of their limerence, like this is fulfilling some kind of a need in me, and I don't want to lose it, and I realize why you're trying to pull away from me, but I, since this person knows a lot about you because of what you have shared, about the facts of your life, what you have shared, about the feelings of your life, then this person does whatever and everything it takes to keep pulling you back again and again and again until finally... And by the way, you won't go exactly the same speed. I've kind of indicated that already, but let me make that clear. One will typically go in faster than the other. And so one typically will reach stage two faster than the other. And stage two is called crystallization. Now, there are people who write about crystallization in limerence. So don't think that's just original with me. I'm the one who explains the three phases based on all the people that we work with. So in phase two... Even it is not a straight line across like a mesa or a plateau. It can be a swiggly line too. So that some days it's stronger and some days it's weaker. We'll kind of dip down some, some days stronger again. It actually becomes an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it's pretty intense. And in this emotional roller coaster, they do some things to try to diminish the pain and enhance the pleasure, even though they haven't really thought about it in those terms. What I mean is, because limerence is so emotional, it's not a logical thing at all. It's emotional. And in that emotion, a person's not logically thinking, well, some parts of this hurt. How can I minimize that? Some parts of this actually feel pretty good. How can I enhance that? They're not doing that. They're doing it just because they're instinctively following what their emotions lead them to do. And so things start happening Actually, they start happening in high infatuation. In other words, as they get toward the top in phase one. Then in phase two is when it gets intense because they're crystallizing. So, for example, if you look back at the work of Tenov, one thing she would describe as somebody who is in limerence would be that anyone who came between the two of you would become the enemy. So if you go back to that kind of silly illustration from earlier where the 15-year-old girl brings home the guy that just got out of prison for murder, if the parents say he's not good for you, he's bad for you, then she'll tend to perceive her parents as the enemy. You've probably seen that at least on some minor scale with teenage girls throughout life. But let's take it back into adulthood and say, what about, what about there? If I am married to Alice and I'm getting high in the infatuation stage, which is stage one of limerence, where that I want to be with Sally Sue because we've had this interaction with each other and these emotions keep getting more intense. And I'm going close to phase two, which is the crystallization. And understand, these are not like clear-cut demarcations, like, oops, he just went into phase two at 12.30 a.m. this morning. Uh, no, it's, it's not quite that clear. It's more nebulous. But Fisher went ahead to say that she and her colleagues, remember, she's the one who is the anthropological biologist, who, who act, or maybe a biological anthropologist. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't remember which order it is. She and her colleagues who do the studies where they put people into the FMRs and et cetera, and then ask lots of questions after that, they actually came up with a list of things that are characteristic of people who are in limerence. 
Now, I'm going to paraphrase these things so that, you know, it's a little easier to understand because as social scientists and scientists, they tend to write like scientists. So let me just kind of more put it more in lay language, if I may. One is that the limerent person tends to set the L-O, the limerent object, the person they're madly in love with, apart from the rest of the world. It sets its sights on one and only one object of adoration. And so if a guy has three different women out there, he's not in limerence with all three. Or if a woman's got six guys out there, she is not in limerence with all six. Limerence can only be for one person at the time. It's impossible, according to the research of Fisher and hers and, and her colleagues, and I'll say based on all the thousands of people we work with, that she's absolutely right. It's impossible to experience limerence with more than one person at a time. Now, another thing is that the, the limerent sees the L-O, and I'll quit saying limerent object just for the sake of clarity. You know, we're talking about the person that he or she's madly in love with. The limerent sees the L-O only in a positive light, and the negative becomes invisible. Even the things associated with that person, like uh, letters or words or events they attended together, are cherished and adored as being special because they're associated with the L.O. We refer to that as the halo effect, which can start happening even a little bit early in phase one or infatuation. But when they get to crystallization, it's fascinating because in crystallization, they literally Because of this halo effect, well, let me explain that. A halo effect means if I see one good thing in you, I tend to think everything about you is good. So if I like my singer who plays on the album I bought that I love, boy, that told my age, didn't he? On the the DVD, if I bought the videos, or on the the iTunes, whatever it might be now, if, if that's my favorite singer, then whenever he or she makes some kind of a comment about politics... I tend to think, wow, that's brilliant. That's the halo effect. (laughs) If I see this one thing about you as being outstandingly good, I see everything about you as being great. Hmm. So what happens here with the halo effect in limerence is because I see the parts about you that I'm attracted to, the parts that drew me into this strong emotional relationship with you, I think everything about you is positive. And so they discount the negatives. And the silly illustration we made earlier She doesn't care that he was in prison for murder for many, many years. You know, he's not like that anymore. And so because of this, this halo effect, it's I can't see the flaws in him and her. And no matter what anybody else says, I will not. Isn't that fascinating? To the point where that sometimes people will tell us about their spouse who is in limits with somebody else and will say things like, you know, she's ended like six different marriages. And... And my husband says, don't believe all those rumors, when he was the one back in the day that used to talk about how bad she was. One of my friends, he was a celebrity, so I have to leave him unnamed. I'd leave him unnamed anyway. His wife got involved with a guy that, as far as we know, based on things that we were actually able to put together that were very, very strong evidence, that that was the 15th marriage that this particular man had cause to come to an end. And yet my my friend who was married to the wife, who was number 15, couldn't see it at all. Couldn't see it at all. So this halo effect is, man, there's nothing wrong with the other person. I don't care what you say. You don't get it. You don't see it. 
to the point where that one lady we were involved with, who was actually in her town where she lived, uh, quite a well-known figure, you know, outstanding member of First Baptist Church, had been the high school uh, cheerleader captain back in the day, had gone to college, come back to live there, married to a prestigious man in that community, etc. Left her husband to go be with a man that she was in limerence in, who lived in a rusted out mobile home. And I'm not against mobile homes, so I misunderstand. In a rusted out mobile home, because he was such a failure at everything he had done in life, he had no money. And so he lived out there with no heat. He lived out there with no air conditioning. And when I tried to ask her about that, you know, do you think this might be indicative of the way this guy lives generally? Saw no flaws in it whatsoever. So in part of that crystallization, Fisher writes about it, and I'll guarantee you we've seen it a gazillion times, is that they only see the person in a positive light. And the other part of that is that anything associated with that person, the letters, the words, the events, are cherished. I made a foolish mistake earlier. Oh, I was... This was many years ago before I knew nearly as much about it as I do now, where a friend of mine who was a minister and got involved with a woman in his church and had been caught, was terminated, and I was trying to help him save his marriage, even though he wasn't really sure at that point if he wanted to or not. And in the course of one of our conversations, he said, I've got a safety deposit box that's got little letters that she wrote and notes and a little trinket that she bought me for one time. I naively said, okay, well, to help you get past this, what we need to do right now is go to the bank, you get that safety deposit box out, and we're going to destroy those things. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm still alive. I mean, he went into an explosion of anger and let me know if I even suggested such a thing again, he would thrash me bountifully. Why? It's limerence. Everything associated, with that per- everything associated with that person becomes special. A third one that Fisher and her colleagues noticed was that the limerence life becomes crazy. It, it gets crazy from a physical and an emotional point of view. So they typically experience things such as euphoria, energy surges, but then insomnia and lost appetite and abrupt mood swings, and sometimes even rapid heartbeats. Remember I said in that phase two, it's still not a straight line like a plateau or a mesa. It's still a squiggly line that goes up and down. It's an emotional roller coaster. They may experience anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and may even become afraid when they're with the limerick object. Although, by the way, that's not the case as it gets even stronger. On some of the things I've seen online, they say, oh, you'll always see the way. One way you know it's limerence is because you feel that kind of a rapid change in emotion when you're with him or her. But you understand that as they get deeper into the limerence, those things change. There's still a degree of fear. You see what Fisher and her colleagues found was this. What's happening in the brain, and there's several chemicals involved, I'll just mention two of them, is that a person in a limerence state has an increase in dopamine. That is an ecstasy chemical. I understand it's even kind of like a cousin to cocaine, but it's being, made, it's being made by your own brain. And so there's ecstasy. And so you have this amazing sense of euphoria. At the same time, there's a decrease in serotonin. Now, serotonin does a lot of things. One thing it does, though, is to help calm you down. The less serotonin you have, the greater likelihood of having emotional mood swings and depression, 
and anxiety attacks. That's why there's a whole realm of pharmaceuticals out there called SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And what these things do is help you have more serotonin in your brain because it it helps to calm you down. People in a limerate state have more dopamine and less serotonin. And so fear actually is a factor. And anytime you have fear that the other person might not wind up with you, it increases your passion for that person. In that sense, fear intensifies passion. So if you think about it, part of this euphoria and then misery has to do with the fact that, well, she's happy with me today. Things are going to be wonderful. We're going to be together. Oh, today she doesn't like like she's happy with me at all. Is this thing going to work out? Am I going to wind up with her? Or things are working really well. We're able to see each other and people don't even know where we are. And it's not just sitting out in the park in a table. It has evolved to holding hands, which evolved to hugging, which evolved to kissing, which evolved to, and by the way, it doesn't always evolve to the next state, but most of the time it does, which evolved into a situation where we are uh, seeing each other in a hotel or motel or a friend's house who's helping us cover, and, and we're making love to each other there. And because of all the intense chemicals in the brain, the sensation is, oh, I have never had sex like this before. This is amazing. And they truly do believe that. Part of it is the fact that it's a new partner. You understand that if you're making love to a person for more than two years, you go into a thing called sexual habituation, which means sex can get a little dull. In long-term marriages that are happy and great, at least half the time, if not more, sex is just so-so because of sexual habituation. So part of it is the fact that you're in a brand new relationship. The other part has to do with these brain chemicals. And people think, this is amazing. I'll never be able to match this anywhere ever again. Why didn't I have this before? This is, this is where I'm meant to be. Hmm. Now realize that if you have a husband or wife who is in limerence or been in limerence, you didn't like any of what I just said. But I believe you'd rather that I tell you the truth then he'll lie to you. Number four, according to Fisher and her colleagues, in times of adversity, the limerent feels even stronger emotions for an attraction to the LO. So if they get caught, there are occasions where people get caught and all of a sudden the person, a husband or wife, realizes, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my, my children. I, I might lose my position. In other words, the company's going to fire me because she also works here. Or I work for a church, and they're certainly going to fire me because they don't tolerate their personnel being involved in adultery, or whatever it might be. And so there are times when adversity can actually jar them into being awake and changing things. But it's much more common that adversity actually pushes the two of them together. It becomes you and me against the world. And they'll stand against nearly anybody. And it's kind of interesting at this point that sometimes a person will even stand against his own children. I talked to a man whose grown children said, Dad, if you leave our mother and divorce her to go be with this woman, this guy, by the way, was in his 60s and the other woman was 35. If you go be with her, we're not going to talk to you anymore. You're not going to see your grandchildren. And, and we have nothing to do with you because everything you taught us in life, you're now living in violation of. 
And rather than that shocking him and waking him up where he wanted to go back and be what he was before, it just pushed him right into the other person's arms. And so quite often, quite often the adversity can push the person the other way. Now, let me give a caveat here. We do have something online called an intervention document. If you go to marriagehelper.com, marriagehelper, marriagehelper.com, and the search feature at the top of the page, you type in intervention, you can download a PDF. It's like 35 or 40 pages long. There's also two 45-minute audios there you can listen to where I explain it in greater detail. And you might be thinking, okay, you just said if in times of adversity it pushes them together, yet you're trying to tell me that sometimes you actually do an intervention which might threaten the other person? That's right. Understand, though, that the short-term reaction to the intervention might push the person or the, your, your, your loved one, toward the other person. I actually base that on the intervention methodology that's used in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, you understand who the experts. And they say that it typically is the fifth intervention or afterwards when they can get a person who is an alcoholic to finally get the help he or she needs. And so when I say this, you need to understand that, yeah, intervention is still valid, even though in the short term, Adversity might push the two of them together. Number five, the limerent may obsessively think about the LO up to 85% of the waking hours. Psychologists refer to this as intrusive thinking. Number five, I'm sorry, that was number five. Number six, the limerent typically exhibits signs of emotional dependency on the relationship with the LO, including possessiveness, jealousy, fear of rejection, and separation anxiety. In other words, I get so focused on you, my LO, and these emotions get so powerful that in stage two, where you know it's crystallized, I begin to be terrified that if you're not going to be there for me, then I can't survive. And therefore, if I see you talking to another guy, I become furious. If you tell me that just to cover things, you went out on a date, I get furious. I get scared. As a matter of fact, might even stalk you to see where you went. Because at this point in crystallization, you can become so focused on that other person, you actually think you can't survive if he or she were not to wind up with you. Number seven, the limerent feels a deep longing for emotional union with the LO. That's what they want. This is all about, I want to feel connected. I want to feel that you love me no matter what. I want to know that you affirm me. I want to know that we're we're so deeply in love that nothing could ever tear us apart. Number eight, the limerent feels a powerful sense of empathy toward the LO and is willing to sacrifice for him or her. Like, okay, if it costs me my job, but it helps you get what you need, I love you so much I'll do that. If I have to give up my entire career and lose everything I've ever had, to get you what you need or what you think you need, I'll do that because I, I'm focused on you and you're more important than anything, including me. Number nine, the limerent tends to reorder his or her daily priorities. In other words, that person may change the way that they dress. Uh, they may change their mannerisms. They may change their habits. And all of that is to become more attractive to the LO. And... Typically, they will also change their beliefs and values to be more available to the LO. You see, in stage two, 
It can actually happen toward the end of stage one, which is infatuation. But in stage two, at least by stage two, a person goes through this thing where that what I'm doing is in contradiction to my belief in the value system. And so they do compartmentalized thinking. They keep it as far apart as they possibly can. I don't let myself think about these two things, but they can't keep it apart forever. And so finally, when they come into conflict inside of me, my beliefs and values are I should be faithful to my wife and we with my children. My beliefs and values are that I should not commit adultery. That's a violation of the Ten Commandments. But I so much want to be with Sally Sue. The intense emotion I feel for her is so powerful. Now, this is ripping me apart inside. That's why it's called cognitive dissonance. Dissonance means disharmony. It's killing me. And there's only two ways to resolve cognitive dissonance. And by the way, people will resolve cognitive dissonance because they can't live in that kind of misery forever. Well, I say two ways. I'll mention a third way that I don't typically talk about. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, since we're making this as honest as we can. The first way, as you would imagine, is they stop what they're doing and start living consistently with their beliefs and values. Good. That's a good thing. The second is they modify their beliefs and values to allow them to do the thing that they're doing. In other words, I used to believe that God would say don't commit adultery, but now, now I'm understanding that God really meant something different by that. Or interestingly, you can decide, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of words. It's no better than anything else out there. Or my counselor says that I should do what makes me happy. That's what God wants me to do. Or, you know, I've come to realize there is no God. They're changing their beliefs and values. And if they have not been a religious person heretofore, it's whatever beliefs and values that they had. They change them to make what they're doing okay. Like, I can do this now. It's going to be all right. I can, I can be this different person. And by the way, they do become a different person. Now, the third way that I don't think I've ever mentioned out loud before, because I just don't want to set a stage for bad things, but since I'm trying my best to explain it in great detail here, I think I need to go ahead and explain it to you, and that's this. The third way is I can't choose between going back to my original beliefs and values or changing my beliefs and values to make this okay, and I'm so torn up, I am so miserable, I actually think the best course for me is not to exist. And people in those situations do away with themselves, or at least they try. And when you see that in a situation like this, from my viewpoint, when I hear of or see that it's always the first thought of my brain, they couldn't kill, deal, they could not deal with the cognitive dissonance. They couldn't make a choice. If they could have changed their beliefs and values altogether, they wouldn't be in this state. They couldn't do that. At the same time, they felt they could not give up the LO. And so because they couldn't deal one way or the other, they decided to end it for themselves. I hope and pray that that never happens again with anybody anywhere. But And honestly, I need to tell you, that's a possibility that could exist. Okay. Number 10, the limerick feels sexual desire for the L.O. This desire is coupled with possessiveness, a strong drive for sexual exclusivity. Like, it's got to be me and nobody else. Feelings of jealousy or fear or competition from others. And so this strong sexual desire is 
based on the emotional connection they already have. Limerence is not really about sex. It's about the emotional connection. But then almost always the sex desire gets intense and powerful. Number 11, and yet the limerent craves emotional union much more strongly than the desire for sexual union with the LO. Number 12, the limerent feels that he or she cannot control the emotions that they feel for the LO. And so people in limerence will commonly report that their passion is involuntary and that it's uncontrollable. And number 13, to end up Fisher's list here, Limerence is impermanent. It eventually subsides. Now, this is not just me saying this. This is the person who does all this scientific study on limerence, like with the fMRIs and things. It may take longer to subside if physical or social barriers inhibit the limerent partners from seeing each other regularly. So if they're further apart, one's on one side of the country and the other one's someplace else, it can take longer but it will end. Used to, I would see writings from Fisher who would say that limerence will last somewhere between three months and 36 months. Uh, The later writing I saw indicated that, well, okay, let's modify that sum. It can be somewhere between three months and 48 months. And I know that if your spouse is in limerence, you did not want to hear that. But understand that that tends to be the extreme on either side. Very few end as quickly as three months. And Relatively few last as long as 48 months. Sometimes people say, can it last longer than that? And the answer is, yeah, it can, but those are statistical outliers. I mean, those are extremely rare. The thing is, limerence has to end. As Fisher would understand and explain, it's a biological necessity. Because of the obsessive thinking, the focus on the other person, the lack of productivity, etc., etc., People couldn't live. I'm talking about society would finally just fold in on itself because we need to be having the ability to work and produce, you know, to plant the seeds, to harvest the crops, I mean, to do all the things that we need to do. And if we went into that level of limerence and stayed in it for the rest of our lives, first of all, before birth control, we would have killed all the women because they would have had baby, 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 finally dead because we'd have been putting those babies right behind each other. Not because we're trying to make babies, but because of the great strong connection between the two people. So it always ends. Always. I run into people regularly who say it will not. Yeah. Well, it will. And in crystallization, there's another thing or two that can happen. So, for example, because of my cognitive dissonance, one thing that I may do, and typically, again, this is not done from a logical standpoint, like, let me figure out what I can do. It's done inside of me to help me without me really processing that I'm doing it. And this thing is that I'll start rewriting history, which means that the good things that happened with my spouse beforehand are not remembered, or if they are remembered, not remembered as good things. The bad things that happened with my spouse, I remember, but they have become magnified and exacerbated. So it's not uncommon for a person in limerence to say something like, you know, I never was in love with my spouse. Never. When in actuality, if you go back and find the love letters and all those things from back when they first got together, you can actually prove that they were in love. But I'll tell you this right now, they won't believe it. They won't even believe their own handwriting if they wrote a real letter. 
It's going to be like, well, no, 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 that was just the fantasizing of a kid. I was not old enough to understand what I was doing back then. And so they tend to rewrite history. And then they tend, and I understand that not every limerick does all of these things, okay? But they'll also tend to vilify the spouse. In other words, they take whatever flaws they have, and everybody is flawed and exacerbated to the nth degree. Like, man, she did this. You all think she's this nice, sweet woman, but you don't know what a bitch she is because I can tell you she did this and this and this and this. Or my husband, oh, you think I should stay with him because you guys all think he's a good guy and a good friend? Let me tell you what he's really like. Now, typically, they'll take things that actually happened, but they blow them out of proportion so that it doesn't become the fact that he glared at me with a mean look. It becomes the fact that he was choking me. He said, really? It can, it can change in their minds that much in history? Mm-hmm. And they'll vilify their spouse that intently? Mm-hmm. By the way, if somebody starts doing that about their spouse, don't argue with them. You'll just lock them down if you do. If they say things like that, you just go, wow, that's terrible. And then you don't pay any attention to it anymore. <laughs> in my business sometimes, when we're trying to help people put marriages back together, if some guy were to say something like, well, my wife's got a demon. Really? Mm-hmm. The other night, her head went all the way around. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to say, wow, that must have been scary. But that's okay. We can fix that later. And then I keep going right on toward the other things because arguing is going to lock them down. And so they go through this phase two. Now, again, it's an up and down kind of thing. It's not absolutely flat. Some days it's stronger. Some days it's weaker. But at some point, there's going to be a phase three. And that's deterioration. That's when this thing begins to fall apart, and it will. What I mean by that is that they begin to lose the halo effect, like, hmm, I, why did I not notice that about her before? Or, hmm, maybe he's not the Prince Charming that I thought he was. Or, you know, what you're doing really ticks me off. And so in the deterioration phase, that that halo effect begins to get tarnished, and you actually begin to notice the flaws in the other person that you didn't let yourself see before. The vilification, vilifying the spouse might continue for a while, but it's not as adamant. In other words, it's like, I'm not so intent now on trying to convince you my spouse is this evil, terrible person. And as they're coming out in this phase three, as things are deteriorating, that's when people sometimes begin to count the cost. By the way, this is a wavy line too. It's not directly straight down because sometimes it actually goes back up a little bit and then it loops back down a little bit and back up a little bit and then back down a little bit. You see, I understand that none of this is a straight, clear, linear process. Now, sometimes people say to me, well, can you tell me exactly which phase my spouse is in? No, I can't do that. We are, at this point, developing more specific guidelines that I'm sharing with you here that we'll actually make available. I think we're probably going to do a book on it so we can explain it in great detail to say these are the characteristics that we see in phase one, these are the characteristics we see in phase two, and more detail than I'm explaining now, you understand. And these are the characteristics we see in phase three. And so by looking at these, you can kind of get an idea as to which one a person is in, but understand because it's a squiggly line everywhere as they go into the infatuation up to the crystallization and then a wavy line across there. And when they finally go into deterioration, another wavy line there, it goes up and it goes back down and it goes back up. Don't be, don't be shocked when a person seems to be coming way out of it. Like, I can't believe I've left my family. I miss you guys so much. 
I'm leaving her. I'm getting an apartment down the street from you guys. Can't quite move in yet, but I want to be close to you. And then, and then two weeks later, right back over there with the other person. Don't panic when that happens. That can still be phase three. Now, when people come down and those things begin to change, it does not necessarily mean that they're coming back to their spouse if the limerence has led them out of a marriage. Now, many, many years ago, I divorced my wife, Alice, so I could be with my L.O. This was back in the 1980s, so it was many years ago. My intention was to be with her, but like as is the case with nearly everyone who does that, I mean the vast, vast majority, she and I did not wind up together. You see, the person who went into limerence the fastest and in our situation, that was her tends to be the person that comes out of limerence first and faster. And just as she knew all the things to pull me back into the relationship when I would try to pull out of it over in the infatuation phase one stage, I did everything I knew how to do to pull her back into it when she was in the stage three deterioration phase. I mean, I would try to use guilt. Look at all the things I gave up for you. I would, I would do everything I thought was worth, even stuff that was stupid. I would do everything I could to try to pull her back because it's like, look at everything I've given up because I was still in phase two intently. That was in crystallization. And she was in deterioration. And interestingly, the more I tried to pull her back, the faster it sent her out toward the bottom of phase three. And when a person gets down there, and of course, at this point, she's seeing my flaws that she did not see before. Oh, and that's often when somebody will say something like this. I, I don't know who you are. You're not the same man. You're not the same woman that I fell in love with. <laughs> and your response would be, yes, I am. Look at me. But in actuality, they're correct. Because if you change your belief and value system, to make what you were doing okay so that you could do away with cognitive dissonance so you wouldn't feel as guilty, you did become another person. Because your belief and value system is part of who and what you are. It's part of your identity. And so when that person says, I don't know who you are anymore, you're not the person I fell in love with, even though you typically will not be able to see it, they're right. You have become a different person because you changed your beliefs and values. Now for me... I had changed my beliefs and values dramatically to allow me to do what I did. And so I, for a little while, became what I call an emotional atheist. I had a Bible degree, believe it or not. My bachelor's degree is in Bible. Some of my grad work, graduate work is in Bible. And I knew too much about the Bible to be able to say, oh, God wants me to be with this other woman. I've heard people say that, but, you know, I was educated in the Bible and I couldn't. So what did I do? I didn't come to this logically. I came to this emotionally, although at the time I was convinced it was pure logic, which is God cannot exist. There is no God. And so I became what I call an emotional atheist. And the reason for that is because I didn't want God there because he was in my way. Remember when I said earlier that whoever comes between you and the LO becomes the enemy? Yeah, he was the enemy. My wife, Alice, was the enemy, even though I divorced her. Many of my friends became the enemy because they were saying, you're doing bad stuff, man. You're, what you're doing is wrong. So they became my enemies as well. 
And when finally she abandoned me, oh, let me, let me get out of my story for a minute and come back to the lower part of phase three, the deterioration. When it gets down toward the end, at least for one, and the other, by the way, might still be in phase two, or they both may be in phase three. Actually, if they're both in phase three and going at about the same pace, it's a lot better as to what's going to happen next. If one's still up there in phase two, and the other one's in phase three, the one in phase two will do everything they can to change what's happening and try to get the person back. If that person finally gets down lower into phase three, the deterioration, where now I can see your flaws, where now I'm, I'm not living with these rose-colored glasses about life, I now also see all the things that I lost because of you. Maybe I lost my children, I, I lost my marriage, I lost my beliefs and values, I lost my occupation, I lost my money, whatever. I lost my best friends. I mean, those things that didn't matter at all when you were in phase two, because in crystallization, all that mattered was this other person's concern for you. At the end of phase three, it's like, oh my goodness, look what you cost me. Which in my situation is exactly what she went through. Which is why the vast, vast majority of people who have gone into limerence to the point where one or both left the other spouse so they could be together, never wind up together. The vast, vast majority of them never marry each other. I don't know the exact statistics on that. I actually saw one the other day. I just don't know how valid it was. that said that 95% of those couples don't marry each other. Now, that seems to be true based on what I've seen. I just can't validate that statistic. And for those that do marry in a situation like that, the divorce rate's over 80%. Now, if you say, well, if the national divorce rate is 50%, <laughs> we're talking about a lot bigger deal here that, you know, less than 20% of them stay married. Some do. Now, for those who are saying, so is limerence love? The answer is Yes. It's a kind of love, but it's a relatively short-lived love. I mean, in terms of looking at a lifetime, even if it were to last 48 months, it's just not that long. So it's a relatively short-lived love. Plus, if you think about it, it's a love that even though it's focused on making the other person happy, is motivated by my emotion, the intense emotion I feel of fear that we won't want to be together, and that Nobody's ever understood me like you. I don't know if I could exist without you. You're my soulmate. And so it's driven by those kind of emotions, which means that even though it focuses on making the other person happy, the motivations behind it are all about me. Not really about you. It's not what, about what's best for you. Because if, if I am married to Alice and I'm involved with Sally Sue, if my if my motivation really was, I need to do what's best for people, not just Alice, but what's best for Sally Sue, I wouldn't continue in a limit relationship with her. So while it's a kind of love, it's really a kind of love that's, at base, very selfish, even though it's focused on making the LO happy. So you say, well, then, of those 5%, if that number's right, that do get married, and now they're one of those less than 20% that actually stay married. Can they develop a good marriage? Yes. Again, if your spouse is in limerence, I know you don't want to hear that. But yes. At the same time, though, I think 
This is without exception. If there's been an exception, I don't remember it. The people who have done that have told me, okay, we're going to make this marriage work, but if we had a time machine, we'd go back and this would have never happened. Wait a minute, I just remembered one exception. It was a woman who had been so terribly treated by her husband that she was with when she fell into limerence with this other gentleman. I mean, this guy was a a monster. She didn't say that. She didn't say, I'd go back and do it again. I'd go back and live with a monster. But you could understand that, right? I'm just saying the odds of them being together are very, very small. Now, if that takes away your hope, I'm sorry, but I'd rather tell you what's true so that your hope is based on something that's truly possible than to give you false hope, which is just not going to occur. Now, let me go back to something I was saying earlier then. When a person comes out of that, when he or she finally goes through phase three, they don't always come home. Why? Well, if you've ever listened to our podcast before, you've heard me say something such as, people don't leave what they have unless they believe what they're going to is better. People don't leave what they have unless what they're going to, at least in their belief system, is better. And so if I leave Alice because I want to be with Sally Sue, in my perception, being with Sally Sue is better. Even if it's not in reality, if that's my perception, which Limerence, of course, would create, then I want to be with her because it's better. So then when Sally Sue, by the way, that's not her real name, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously. I'm sure there's some Sally Sue's out there, but her real name is not Sally Sue. When Sally Sue goes through phase three deterioration, I'm still in phase two crystallization, and I'm trying to pull her back. And she didn't come back. At some point, I had to accept the fact that she wasn't coming back, and whenever I finally did accept that, my limerence began to go away. It did not go away nearly as fast as hers did, because she was in control. What I mean by that is that when she went into phase three, it was like, this is my own decision. I want out of this. I was still in phase two. It was like, this is not my decision. As a matter of fact, this is uncontrollable. I need her to be here with me, and she's not going to be. And so I felt out of control, which meant that my phase three took longer. And we're still that loop up and down, looped up and down, et cetera, et cetera. When she got toward the end of phase three, it was pretty fast. And at that point, it was a straight line when she got toward the end. Did I call my wife, Alice, who that, that I had divorced, and say, will you take me back? The answer is no. In my mind, I had so vilified Alice that I saw being alone as being better than being with her, even though that vilification wasn't accurate. In my mind, it was. Oh, and by the way, when everything fell apart for me, I started drinking and drinking pretty heavily and then started hanging out in places I didn't used to hang out. You know, going places I'd never gone before, doing things I'd never done before. And all of a sudden, I'm living this hedonistic lifestyle that's just uh, revelry. I mean, all kinds of things. And then I evolved to the point where thinking, maybe devolved is the better word of thinking, that's better than being married. I want to live like this. This is amazing. I mean, look how much fun I'm having. And I couldn't live like this if I went back to Alice, or actually if I married anybody. (laughs) And that lasted for a while. Until finally, finally I got a little bit more maturity and began to realize my life's pretty miserable. I miss my children. Even though I did see them every other weekend, I miss my children. I want to be with them more. 
And I'm not going to go into the rest of my story except to say that I called Alice and said, would you consider taking me back? She wasn't sure if she wanted to or not. <laughs> she was already dating somebody else. Apparently a good guy. I never met him. Apparently a good guy. And so what happened with her is that she had to think about it. And so she asked all of her religious friends, who all said, no, 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 don't take him back. She asked all of her family, who said, double no, don't you dare take him back. She asked her friends, who said, no, don't take him back. And after two weeks of contemplation, decided she would. Oh, you can ask her why someday if you ever meet her. But basically what she said was, I realized every relationship was a risk. Even the guy I was dating now, every relationship was a risk and... I believe that at heart, Joe was a good man who had done some really bad things, and I decided it was worth the risk to try it again. No, we were not madly in love at that point. As a matter of fact, we didn't go back into limerence with each other. <laughs> Don't misunderstand. That didn't happen. And it wasn't even strong romantic love to begin with. It was a decision to do the right thing, which is also, by the way, a kind of love. To do the right thing for each other, to do the right thing for our children, the right thing for our families, so forth and so on. And I can assure you that now, and it didn't take, you know, decades. <laughs> it didn't happen in weeks or months, but it didn't take long years either. Now, we, we actually developed a very deep and true love for each other again and have it to this day and will until the day we die. Now, if you've understood this, I realize I've probably caused a lot more questions <laughs> by giving some of the answers. And if you're the kind of person who was listening saying, I am so frustrated because you explained the three phases, but you didn't give me the demarcation. Like this is when they moved to phase two, exactly. And this is exactly when they moved to phase three. And this is exactly where they are in phase three. No, all I can do is teach you principles. When Kimberly Holmes, the CEO of our organization, and I write the book on limerence, which we've already started working on, we're going to try to make it clearer in the book. But even then, I will not give the ability to you to read the other person's mind. We can't tell you hard and fast these are the rules. If you've understood this and your spouse is in limerence, use this knowledge for you to grow. If you are the one who is in limerence, please don't think of me as being your enemy, although I think you might. Understand I've been exactly where you are. And now what I've been sharing with you is not just my opinion. There's good, solid science behind that. And not only that, hundreds of thousands of couples that we've worked through. And if you're thinking, yeah, but we're different. It won't apply to us. I know how you feel. I felt the same way. So have thousands of others until they found that as unique as we are in this matter, we're all very much alike. And the end will come as I predicted. I'm sorry for that pain. We'll see you next week on this program. Thank you for listening.